We're looking at uh, Matthew. We're going to be looking at Matthew. We started in Advent, looking at the, the, the Christmas narratives of Jesus' birth in the Gospel of Matthew uh, in December. We're going to be studying Matthew to the end of chapter 7 uh, through Pentecost. Pentecost is in, in May, and uh, or maybe late April. Uh, and uh, we're going to be uh, looking at the Sermon on the Mountain. One of the reasons that um, I felt... Matthew was a good book for us to, to study. Uh, for one, every, every year from Christmas uh, through Easter into Pentecost, uh, we always study a gospel, uh, the gospel because Jesus is kind of the heart and, and center of the scriptures, the center of this church. So we study, uh, we put a lot of time to study Jesus', Jesus life, about five months uh, every year. Um, but one of the things about the gospel of Matthew is um, I, I was reflecting over the last quarter um, as we were thinking about the new year, about my calling as a pastor and the, the, our mission as a church. And, um, you know, all churches should have the same, you know, mission statement or roughly the same mission statement. We all are getting our mission from Jesus. And in the end of Matthew is Jesus' most famous mission statement for the church where uh, he says, tells us to go and to make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded, and uh, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, that our mission is to make disciples. And I, I was uh, reflecting on that. I was thinking about my own calling. I was thinking about our church, and uh, how do you make disciples? And Jesus says, well, for one, you baptize them, and then you teach them to obey all that I've commanded. I thought, well, where is that? Okay, i got to teach... <laughs> what Jesus has commanded. And I was thinking, well, look, this little verse comes at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And so Matthew is saying, you want, to know, you want to make disciples, look at the Gospel, look at Jesus' teaching through the Gospel of Matthew. And so that's what we're going to be doing. This year we'll be looking at the first seven chapters uh, next, and probably over the next uh, three or four years uh, from roughly January to May, we'll be looking at a chunk of Matthew. It'll take us a few years uh, to get through the whole book, but, um, but we're getting started as we come into the new year, and uh, this, uh, we're right at the forefront of Jesus' ministry here in uh, Matthew chapter 3, and uh, this is God's word to you because uh, you're his people. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, for the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word, for how challenging it is, how often your word says things that we would not say. And uh, here we, ha- we meet John the Baptist, uh, your servant, your messenger, who speaks to us. I pray that you'd give us ears to hear him. And I pray as we study your word um, that you would open the eyes of the blind, that you would uh, open the ears of the deaf, that you would raise the dead, that you would give new life uh, through the truth of your word to us. Give us faith. Give us soft hearts to hear what you have to say to us. I thank you for this church, and I pray that your spirit would be our teacher, that you would apply uh, the words of this, uh, your holy word, your perfect word, through um, an imperfect teacher. You would apply these words uh, to the hearts of your people. And I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, an important theological distinction um, in the Bible where there's two kinds of messages that are present in the Bible. There's the law, which is uh, the standard by which God tells us to live our lives, the standard by which God is going to judge us. And then there's the gospel, which is uh, the story of God uh, sending Jesus to deliver us from slavery to sin and uh, to rescue us from our sin. There's these two stories. Um, different, uh, one is what God expects us to do, and the other is what God has done for us. One's what God expects us to do for him, one is what God has done for us in Jesus. Different messages. And I, uh, I think that if, if you've ever read through the Bible, picked up the Bible, read through it, you've probably sensed that there's these two kinds of messages there. And uh, what I want to do is explore this morning, how do these two messages, the law and the gospel, work together? How do they work together to prepare us uh, to, for who Jesus is? And, um, you know, I, when I was in college, I went to Western, and I, I worked at Avenue Bread downtown. And, uh, you know, I had all kinds of customers who came in that were regulars, and there's this one gal, who, sweet lady, who come in, came in every day, and she always got New York rye bread, and we'd always chatted. And uh, one, one day, she happened to come in while I was on my break, and uh, I was sitting out you know, at a table eating a sandwich, and I had my Bible open, and I was reading during my break. And she walks by, and she says, huh, you're reading a Bible. That's odd. <laughs> I didn't know people still did that. And, uh, and so I said, yeah, and, you know, especially you're a young person. Wow, you're reading the Bible. And, and so I say, sure. And she said, you know, the thing I never understood about the Bible is that it seems like God in the Old Testament is a God of wrath. And then God in the New Testament is a God of love. See ya. And out the door, I was like, wait, yeah, let's, you want to talk about it? Uh, want to sit down? And I, I didn't get to talk to her about it. But very common question that many people have. Isn't, doesn't kind of, isn't God kind of schizophrenic? Does he ch- change faces? In the Old Testament, he's a fiery God of judgment and wrath. In the New Testament, he's welcoming sinners and saying, come and I forgive you. And I, he's gracious and soft and kind. Well, first of all, uh, you won't find that in the Bible. You read the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament is about God. Uh, calling a people Israel to, to be his children. 
And they reject him for centuries, centuries upon centuries. They reject him and disobey him. And he's patient and he waits and he doesn't judge him. He gives them second chances and he keeps his promise. I mean, the whole thing is just a story of grace, 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 violence. And, then, and so the Old Testament is not a God, God of wrath. I mean, there is judgment. There is wrath in the Old Testament. But there's plenty of grace. And in the New Testament, you know, you get through the Old Testament, you don't hear anything about hell until you come to Jesus. Everything we know about hell comes from Jesus' own mouth. And the New Testament, which most people think, oh, it's the testament of love and grace. Well, it is, but it's, also, it's got judgment there too. In both, you have these messages of, of law and judgment and, and God's grace in the gospel. And, um, and so, uh, but there is a sense in which we must face the wrath of God, the law of God, honestly, before we can ever truly appreciate his love and grace. That's one of the things that the Bible is insisting on. We have to face God's law, his judgment, his wrath, which we don't want to talk about. We have to face it honestly if we're really going to be excited and know the deep joy of his grace. So we have to think about what we deserve first before we can really appreciate what we've been given. And that's why um, all four of the gospel writers who tell uh, about the life of Jesus, write the life of Jesus, all of them tag on to the beginning of Jesus' ministry the, the, uh, the teaching of John the Baptist, who comes as preparing the way for Jesus, preparing people's hearts, preparing people's minds for what Jesus is going to be doing. You see that there in verse 3. For this is he, talking about John the Baptist, for this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John is preparing the way for Jesus, and he does that by, um, by being a messenger of fire, judgment, unquenchable fire of wrath. He, John is basically an embodiment of the law of God. And so what I want to do this morning is um, explore how does the message of the law Act as a preparation for us to understand who Jesus is. How does the law prepare us, prepare our hearts, so that we can really understand Jesus' message, why Jesus came, what he was, what he was about? And so I'm going to do that really under two headings. And, and they are that first comes the law, and second comes the gospel. This is their relationship. First comes the law, and second comes the gospel. And I... Hopefully this clears up, ties together many things for you in the Bible. So first of all... Uh, first, we need to hear the law. And um, now the heart of this passage I just read to you is John the Baptist's fire sermon. He uses the word fire a lot. That's a favorite image of his. And uh, it, it, here's a picture of John the Baptist in verse 4. It says, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So this, you know, he's, you can't help but like John the Baptist. You know, he's got a beard. He hasn't showered. He's wearing camel's hair. He lives in the woods. He eats bugs and honey. He's got no teeth. His eyes are kind of one's bigger than the other, and he's talking about fire all the time. And, you know, and he uses one of, I think, one of my favorite images of God's judgment in the Bible. Uh, you know, you see that there in verse 10. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. So he's, he sees God as a lumberjack. And he's like Paul Bunyan with his axe. He's taken down trees. And, um, and so he's got this imaginative, fiery, um, wild ministry. 
And um, what John the Baptist is, is he's basically the last prophet of the Old Testament. There are all these prophets in the Old Testament. And he's the last of the Old Testament that's kind of stuck onto the front of the New Testament. And, um, and what he is, is he's basically a living embodiment of God's law that comes and says, you're all a bunch of sinners. You better get ready. God's coming to Jesus. You're all a bunch of sinners. And um, what this passage does is it calls all of us to face the reality that each one of us will have to stand before God and give an account for our lives. Every one of us has an examination awaiting us where we will uh, stand before the pure, the holy God. And it's an examination that if you pass that examination, you, uh, you will step into, you will become everything that you were intended to be. You know, all of us have this sense of potential in our lives. I was made to have a life that loves God and loves people. And, um, and, and I've never, I just feel a hint of it. And I feel so hindered by my flesh to do it. And if you pass this examination, you will step into the fullness of that life of who you were meant to be into the glory of God for eternal life. And, and if you don't pass the exam, you'll be cast out of God's presence forever. That eternal bliss will have been just within your grasp and you will have lost it forever. And uh, this, is, this is the picture that God says is awaiting uh, each one of us. And um, now many people would say that a belief like that is very dogmatic, very religious, very cold, very judgmental. Um, I, I don't see it that way at all. <laughs> To me, this is a story that is very exhilarating. Uh, it's, a, it's an adventure story. Because adventure stories are all about people who get into a situation where they are on the brink of ruin. And it seems like all, uh, every, uh, every, thing is saying that they are on the brink of losing everything and there's no hope left and then eventually in the adventure story a rescuer comes something happens that delivers them and what John the Baptist is saying to us is all of us whether you want to hear this or not are tiptoeing on the edge of hell we are tiptoeing on the edge of hell by nature by our nature that's what the Bible says we are children of wrath and um, and yet God is um, is going to send and a rescuer to save us uh, from peril. And, uh, you know, you might not think examinations and judgments are, are exhilarating, but I, I think you do. Uh, you know, we just, Shannon and I, just last night, we were watching um, The Next Iron Chef. And what is this show? I mean, I couldn't believe how religious this show is. Actually, where they put the food out of what these chefs are going to make is called the altar. And they have this row of judges and these two women who are in the finals. They're just sweating bullets. My whole life has been building up to this point of this judgment. And we love it. We want to watch it. There's going to be an examination. And her whole life is resting on what did they like her lamb chops and it, were they good did they mix with the the eggplant and because what we know is deep down in our dna we want to be examined and we want to be vindicated we want to be justified and that's why we tell stories we watch shows we watch stories that are about that and uh and now i know that that's uncomfortable for some of you to think about you know talking about hell, examinations, uh, judgment, law, eternal ruin. Um, but let me just ask you this. Do you really think that when you go and you meet the maker of the universe, 
that it's just, he's going to be a teddy bear and, hey, pal, you know, it's not going to be, hey, pal. It's going to be terrifying. The maker of the universe, my whole purpose of my life, he's going to tell the whole story of my life. Every thought, every, every intention that I have in my life is going to be God the terrible we're going to be meeting. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that he's, uh, that God is evil. I don't mean to say that God is evil at all. God is good. He's pure. He's wise. He's everything of what goodness is. And we're going to stand in his presence. And it is going to be nothing less than terrifying. And, you know, I've actually, I've just been reading Lord of the Rings uh, to my kids. And if, if you know that story, uh, you know, in the beginning, uh, Sam and Frodo are starting on this adventure. And one of Sam's biggest desires is to meet elves. And he's heard stories about elves. And, uh, and right towards the beginning, when they just get started on their adventure, they meet this pack of elves that, that are at night, and they spend an evening with them, eating with them. And the elves kind of guard them from the dark riders who are, who are following them. And there's this one line where it's, uh, as they're walking with the elves, it says, Sam walked along Frodo's side as if in a dream with an expression on his face, half of fear and half of astonished joy. Half of fear and half of astonished joy. Elves are immortal, wise, pure beings. And you can't step into their presence without this sense of fear. How much more is that going to be with God when we meet him? It will be an exhilarating, uh, it, it may be joyful, <laughs> but whether it's joyful or not, it will be an experience of fear and trembling. And, uh, you know, let me just, because... I know this is a difficult you know, subject for many people. Let me just say that I also think in Bellingham, we kind of understand the importance of fear in, in, in deep joy. I mean, why do you think, why do we go snowboarding in the backcountry? Why do we do uh, uh, mountain biking? True thrill, true uh, joy is only really um, delicious if it has an element of, of fear in it. And it's not, that's not just an extreme sports. You know, when you fall in love, and all of a sudden, I'm letting someone close to me, like I've never let someone into my life. They're finding out more about me that no one else has known. There's supreme joy in that, but what is there also? There's fear. There's trepidation. They're going to find out about me. Magnify that a gazillion times, and that's what it is to encounter God and to face God. And that's what, we, and that's what John the Baptist says. <laughs> Wake up to the reality that we have that um, encounter coming for us. And the Bible is insistent that you are not ready for God's grace, for God's love, for God's forgiveness until you have honestly faced that examination and you have honestly faced the law of God and what the law of God has to say. The law must do its work on us before Jesus can do his. The law must do its work on us before Jesus can do his. And so John the Baptist comes preparing us for a Savior. And let me just tell you um, uh, three reasons why the law is a preparation for embracing Jesus. The first thing is this, is that the law points at God. The law points us to God. And um, what I mean by that is that when, when you see the law in the Bible, um, its commands, the vision of what righteousness is, what life is, what goodness is, it is giving you a picture of what God's character is like, of his goodness. And, um, and you see this a little bit in this passage here, verse 7, you see one aspect, but when uh, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, oh, but when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
And what he's putting before them is the character of God, that God has wrath against evil in the world. The evil in the world makes God angry. And um, what it tell, what, one of the things this tells us is that um, the God of the Bible, God is not kind of a sea of energy that's kind of infused into the universe. God, the picture the Bible gives of God is that he's a judge. And, uh, you know, when I say that, when the Bible says that God is a judge, you don't picture in your head the guy with the, you know, up on the bench with the gavel and the black suit. That's, that's not the, the Bible's picture of a, a judge. The Bible's picture of a judge is, is William Wallace, the blue face paint, and uh, the, the English are oppressing the poor, and I'm going to, and they, the wicked are going to be slain. <laughs> And, uh, and he's a defender of his people, and he uh, fights against, that's the picture of, of, of the, the, you know, when you read the book of Judges in the Bible, that's more what they are like, they're braveheart. And so um, he is impassioned. And what the law shows us is the passions of God for justice. It's what God loves, what he cares for. He cares um, that people love each other, that you're, you're fair to people, that you're forgiving to people, that you're kind, um, that you're generous. That this is, this is all the characteristics of who God is and how he envisions that the world should, uh, should work together and how humanity should work together. And that's why in the Psalms, when David talks about the law, he says that he loves the law. He loves to look into the wonders of the law because when he looks into the law, he's seeing what God is like, and it just thrills his heart. Um, but what also happens um, is that when we look at the law and see the goodness and wisdom and beauty of God, we see what our, how much we don't meet that law. And I, let me just make one side comment here. You know, a lot of times if, if, as Christians, when we think about we want to share our faith with people and we say, well, if someone's going to believe in Jesus, they need to see how sinful they are. So I need to, I need to tell them how, all the sins that I see in their life so I can show them how bad they are and then they'll believe in Jesus, which generally doesn't work. Uh, people don't respond to that very well. Um, but uh, instead, what the Bible allows us to do is just say, look at what God is like. Look at his character. And then for me to say, I just know when I look at God's character, I see I'm not like him. I'm not generous. I'm not slow to anger and, uh, and, and patient. Um, I, you know, I, I'm not pure and wise. I, I, I'm full of, of bitterness and I'm slow, slow to forgive. And uh, I'm just not like him. And so what the law does is it shows us the goodness of what God is like. And, um, and so naturally when we gaze into the law, it doesn't just point at God doesn't just show us God's character, but it also acts like a mirror, and it points at us. The, uh, uh, the law also points at us. This is what Paul in Romans says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We don't know what our hearts are really like unless the law has done its work on us, unless it's, it's, it's been a mirror to show us who we really are, because we deceive ourselves. Everyone thinks I'm the greatest guy in the world. You know, of course I'm a nice guy. Of course I'm a good guy. And, the, and the, the, we need the law to mirror us and to show us what we're like. And, um, and, you know, that raises a question of, is the law there to beat us up? You know, I know some of you have been in churches that are that way, that the whole message of the church is to just pound on you and beat you up, and you, you do not leave church without a sense of, I, I'm of guilt, of, of pounded, being pounded into the ground. And it's just like a huge burden and a weight that's being laid on you. And uh, one of the things 
that you see in this passage is that when, uh, when John brings his fire sermon, he says, okay, I'm going to give it to you. This is what you got to face, talking about fire, that axe, you know, God's a lumberjack and all that. Who's he speaking it to? Right? Because look at this passage again. Up, uh, earlier in 5 and 6, it says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So there's all kinds of people whose hearts are already open. They know they're sinners. They know, and that's how many of us are. We come to church, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm falling far short of everything that I'm supposed to be. And uh, the law doesn't, I don't need the law to do its work on me. I, I'm already broken. I'm already beat down. And always Jesus is never pounding the law on people whose hearts are broken like that, who feel like they're failing. He never does that. Look at who John the Baptist brings his fire sermon down on, right? Uh, in the next verse, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It's, it's to uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees, are the kind of the religious elite. The Pharisees are kind of these lay, uh, lay religious leaders that everyone's respected. They think they're very righteous. The, the Sadducees are kind of the, uh, you know, kind of religious professors, chief priests and things like that. And, and there's this sense of pride and self-righteousness. And they think that they're better than everyone else. And it's the, it's the self-righteous that John brings his fire sermon on um, to be a mirror to them, to see, look at who you really are. And... Um, and I think that um, what generally happens in churches when we're talking a lot about judgment, a lot about God's wrath and fire, the church is always thinking about people somewhere else. God's wrath is going to land on those wicked people out there. And, uh, you know, this happens on both conser in conservative churches and liberal churches, right? Conservative churches are, are you know going to talk about the, you know, the sexually immoral, the, the immoral people uh, that are out in the world. Uh, God's wrath is going to fall on them. And, uh, and the liberals who are, you know, they're more focused on the marginalized and the poor and those who are oppressing the poor, God's wrath is going to, judgment is going to fall on, on them. But always God's law is meant to be a mirror from me. God's law is to, it's to expose, to cut in and to show uh, what's really in my heart. Who am I really? And, um, and you see that with John the Baptist and the Pharisees. Look at verse 9. He says, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. So he says to these Pharisees and Sadducees, I know what you think. I know you think because you were born in Abraham, you have this pedigree, this, you have this heritage, and you stand in that, and you think you can look down on everyone else. Uh, I know your intentions. See, John is an embodiment of the law. That's what the law does is it opens up our hearts and shows what really lives inside of our hearts. And so this process of the law kind of cutting you open, uh, it's, it's never, never pleasant. But also the law doesn't leave us there. The law doesn't just leave us. It, doesn't, it points at, at God, shows us his character. It points at us. It's a mirror to us. But also the law points at Jesus. The law moves beyond us and points us to a Savior. And uh, after John kind of lays down his fire sermon, he, uh, he turns his attention to Jesus. Look at verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. And so when he comes, he's talking about repentance and bringing the law. He's preparing us to say, I want to point you somewhere else. I'm going to point you to a savior. I'm going to point you to a rescuer. 
And uh, that's not where the story ends. And, um, and that's the thing about the law. You know, the law is like a plumb line. You know, a plumb line does is it measures if a wall is straight, right? And, uh, you know, it's a line that comes down to see if the, law is vertic- uh, the wall is vertical. And, it, and a plumb line, the thing about a plumb line, a plumb line cannot make the wall straight. The line will tell you whether the, the, the wall is straight, but it won't make the wall straight. And that's what the law does, is the law shows us how we're crooked, but it doesn't have the power to make us straight. It doesn't have the power to change us. And so that's why it has to point beyond itself. And, th- and that's why Paul says that the law is like a tutor. It's, like a, a, it, it's preparing us, getting us ready to pass us off to the Savior, to Jesus. And, uh, you know, just this week, uh, last week I shared with you that my wife Shannon had been sick. She had the flu. And uh, this last week it progressed to uh, pneumonia. Shannon had pneumonia for several days, you know, so she was in bed for eight days, I think. And um, so, uh, you know, it's Christmas break. I have five uh, young children, and so I was on dad duty. And um, I'd like to say that I was a great hero during that time, but I, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I can't. Uh, I wasn't. I wasn't that. Uh, it was a time of uh, trial for me, and um, one trial in the midst of those eight days. Uh, we have a three-year-old twins, and one of them has uh, won't stay in bed at night. So. Many of you have young parents. Maybe, maybe your kids do this too, but they, she just kept getting out. And I have to walk through uh, my daughter Lucy's room. She's eight in order to get into Molly's room to kind of deal with her. And so she sees me coming in and out, in and out, over and over. And, she, and the atmosphere, the aroma of the house is increasingly getting tense as with each trip to her room. And, the, you know, the frustration, the anger, how am I going to make her stay in her bed, the, and even the intimidation, using my power. And, and, um, and as it's getting increasingly uncomfortable and everyone's kind of like, well, what's going on? This is, this is uh, dad's, you know, cool it. Uh, I walk in through Lucy's room and she, and she stands up and she says, dad, you're being too hard on her. She's just a little girl. Here's, here I am in fuming, and my little John the Baptist uh, is uh, confronting me. How do you expect to escape the wrath of God, you pastor, right? You Sadducee, Pharisee. And, um, and so th- what's happening? She's an embodiment of the law of God. And what happens is when, you know, when we're faced with that, um, it's not pleasant. And there's two options when the law exposes us. Is on the one hand, we can get defensive. We say, don't you dare talk to me like that. Do not. Uh, stay out of my business. And uh, don't try to pry, in, pry into me. Or it can humble us. And to say, I'm a way worse person than I ever imagined or than anyone else knows. And I'll tell you, there's a mixture of those <laughs> uh, when I met my little John the Baptist. And uh, there, was a, there was a mixture but by God's grace, it did. It led me to Jesus. It led me to fall down and say, God, I'm out of control. Sin just comes out of me. I can't change me. I'm a crooked wall, and, I, and the law cannot make me straight. I need a savior. And so what happens is that in this pattern of the Bible is that the law comes first. It convicts. It shows us our need of a savior. But second comes the gospel. And... Um, and John the Baptist, I, I'm going to draw out two things that he tells us about the gospel. 
is that first of all, what the gospel is about is that Jesus fulfills the law for us. Jesus fulfills the law for us. Uh, So, uh, you know, John comes saying how sinful we are, uh, but then he talks about Jesus. This is what he says in verse 11. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. And so what he's saying is we are, you know, we're self-righteous, we're bitter, we hold grudges, we're impatient, we're lazy, um, we hurt people, we turn our backs on people, we're unforgiving, all these things. And he says Jesus is not like us. Uh, Jesus is the worthy one. He's the one who's worthy of God's, God's care, God's love. And, um, and what Jesus does is Jesus fulfills the law for us. He becomes the one. When we can't fulfill the law, he becomes the one who fulfills the law. And he fulfills the law in two ways. First of all, Jesus lives the life that we should have lived. Jesus lives a life. You know, God's law says, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus did that. He trusted God. He walked in trust with God. He was caring with people. He spoke spoke hard words when he should speak hard words. He didn't speak when he shouldn't speak. He cared for the poor. He brought the the broken to him. Um, He was generous. He was kind. Everything that God's law gives us, he is it 100% to perfection. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. But also, Jesus died the death that we should have died. So the law says if you don't meet the law, you got God's wrath is going to come upon you. And Jesus took the wrath that we deserved on the cross. And so the the law demanded that that sin should be punished, and the punishment fell upon Jesus on the cross. And, uh, you know, this passage talks a lot about baptism. You know, uh, uh, John the Baptist is baptizing, and then he says there's going to this one coming after me is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit with fire. And uh, what baptism is, baptism is um, this rite, you know, we uh, put water on on someone um, where we are bound to Jesus. Uh, We share in his life. And I often use the illustration that uh, baptism is, is like a wedding ring. And what happens when you get married is you give each other these rings, and this ring is like a pledge of our relationship that our lives are now tied together. And everything that's mine is yours, and everything that's yours is mine. We share our life together. And so what baptism is, when we put our faith in Jesus and we believe, we have a shared life with Jesus. And everything that's true for him becomes true for us. So when it says that he, Jesus fulfilled the law for us, he lived the life that we should have lived, God sees us the way he sees Jesus. We get to share in his righteousness. And when he dies the death that we should have died, we get to share in the death that's already paid. So that's why, you know, when when I get up here and you hear me talking about the examination earlier, you know, we're going to stand before God and we're on the, you know, brink of ruin and this, the the decision is being made and I speak with almost a glee about that and you say, why are you gleeful about this examination? It's because, it's because I have Jesus. And when I stand before God and I'm trembling and I'm wetting myself and my mouth's open, you know, and I'm shaking with fear before God and the story of my life is, is being told with all of the shame, all of the, the anger of my three-year-old girl getting out of bed and whatever, the whole story, all the intentions of my life is being told. Again and again, God will say he belongs to Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the law for him. He shares in Jesus' life. And let me just tell you, if you pass that exam because of Jesus' grace to you, you will be sobbing with gratitude. He covered you.
he will cover us. And that there is no sin that is so great in our lives that his righteousness cannot cover so that we can pass that examination. That is the hope of the gospel. Jesus fulfills the, life, the, the, the law for us. But let me also tell you this. Uh, you know, if, you, if the law works on you and you really, it really cuts your heart and you see, wow, I am, I am late, you know, selfish, I'm, I'm greedy, I'm, uh, I tear people down, I'm self-righteous. If, I'm, if, if, if it really cuts you like that, you're going to be deeply grateful that Jesus covers you with his righteousness, that you will stand before God. But also, you're going to say, I, I don't just want my sins forgiven. I want to be changed. I want to really love people. I want to I really love God. I want a heart that really loves God. And that's the other thing of the gospel is that Jesus fulfills the law for us, but also Jesus fulfills the law in us. And uh, that's the, um, you see that here in the end of verse 11 where it says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Um, one of the things that Jesus does when we put our faith in Jesus, we say, I belong to him. I'm bound to him. I share life with him is that he gives us our, his spirit, the spirit of Jesus to live in us and to give us a new nature, to love new things and, and uh, to become new people. And, um, and, uh, the, um, and it says here that, uh, that Jesus will baptize us with the Holy Spirit. And, you know, some people... I won't get too much into this. Some people uh, talk about how there's these kind of two baptisms. There's water baptism, and then there's a later in your life you have this baptism of the Spirit, which isn't really what you see in the Bible. You know, in the next passage, Jesus is going to get baptized, and the Spirit's going to come upon him. And, uh, and all through Acts, the giving of the Holy Spirit to people is kind of tied to their actual water baptism. And what that means is that water baptism is a pledge. It's a seal of God's promise to us that he will give us his Holy Spirit to live in us, to cleanse us, to wash us, to make us new. So that, you know, for example, I talked about the wedding ring. Where, what is this wedding ring a, a sign and a seal of? Not my promises to Shannon, but Shannon's promises to me. She put this ring on my finger saying, I'm going to love you. And when we wear baptism, it's God's wedding ring on us saying, I will give you my spirit, I, I, my promise, my pledge to you. And, um, and so how does this work, that the spirit lives in us and it changes us? How does that work with the gospel? Well, you come back to my little story with, uh, with Lucy and Molly, you know. So John the Baptist has cut me open. I'm, I'm going to Jesus, and I say, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a deep sinner. I'm way worse than I ever imagined. And I see that God, I'm covered in the grace of Jesus, that he loves me, that he forgives me for everything that, that I've done. And then I go back to my daughter who's getting out of the crib. And what do I realize? She's me. <laughs> I'm getting out of the crib every, every two minutes with God and when he tells me not to get out. That's me. It's this persistent resistance. And what does God do for me? He's patient. He's forgiving. He's gentle. And when I see that that's me, the gospel has changed me that I have to, I have to be gentle to her. How's God been with me? I need to love her. I need to be patient. I need to be persistent. And so what the gospel does is when I hear the gospel, when I hear the security that God loves me even though I'm a sinner, the spirit comes in, the spirit of adoption, the spirit of sonship that gives me security that I'm loved by God so that I'm able to love other people. That's the transformative power of the gospel. So this is what happens. The law comes, it convicts us, says we need a savior, we go to the savior, Jesus fulfills the law for us and fulfills the law in us. But there's just one last, I want to close with this. There's one last little phrase that I left off there at the end 
of, of, or in end of verse 11, it doesn't just say that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. It says he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And uh, what that means is that you will be baptized. And it will either be um, that the law will cut you and you will see your need for a savior and uh, you will be judged by God's law and say, I need a savior. You'll be humbled. And you'll go and be baptized and put your trust in Jesus and he will give you a new life and he will give you eternal life. Or you will resist it. You'll be defensive and say, don't, don't, budge, don't barge into my life and uh, tell me about my heart. Stay out of my business, God. And what will happen is that I... I uh, you won't be judged now, but you'll be judged later, and you'll be baptized with the fire of judgment. And uh, it's either I'm judged now so that I can uh, throw myself on God's grace and be transformed, or I can resist judgment and say, I am righteous, I am good, I don't need God's grace. And uh, we'll face the judgment when the offer of grace is, is passed. One of the things we're going to see in the Gospel of Matthew is uh, he is pushing us to decision. He is pushing us to decision, and I ask you this because I love you. I deeply love you. Which are you? Are you being judged now, or are you going to be judged later? Do you have the ears to hear John's words, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for challenging words. And I pray that the work of the law in our church would not be to tell us uh, to beat us up, would not be uh, to lay burdens on us, but the work of the law would be to drive us to Jesus, the friend of sinners, that in him we might find grace we thank you that he has fulfilled the law for us and fulfilled the law in us. Um, apply these words. Use them in the hearts of those who sit here. Give them faith. Give us faith to trust him. We thank you for the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen.